There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 13th of July. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, Louth GAA sent a strong message to RTE. I, I come from Louth at the moment and I'm trying to build a stadium at the moment and we just haven't got the money. I'm not going to ask anyone if they want to sponsor a stadium. But I'm just going to say, <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, we are trying very, very hard, you know. And Declan, we had a problem with you, Declan, this year, Declan. Correct. Yeah, Declan, the problem we had this year was... Last year, you had no problem uh, televising games in Audi and County Loud. And this year, you made a, made a comment about the facilities wasn't, was, wasn't suitable. Let me finish. So I, 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 everybody is trying really, really hard to increase the facilities. I come from Dundalk. Dundalk are trying very hard to improve the stadiums. At the bottom. And I know the facilities are very, very important to get a, a probably... And probably a better picture of the, the standard of the game that he has at the moment. Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick speaking to Declan McBennett, who is uh, the group head of sport in RTE at uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Media. And I know, I know that I mean, we were very, very disappointed and we were very, very let down, and we never got a proper response from the good sets over what happened with the live game not being televised. We were told the facilities were very, very poor. But we, we honestly do believe that there was comments made that evening by, by, by certain people in RTE that the facilities in Live wasn't good. It's not our fault that we can't afford a stadium, but we, but we had a pitch and we had facilities and the club put a big, big effort in for the last number of seasons. And then OTE came in and just with one swipe, gone. I absolutely agree. The comment that was made w- was, was incorrect and it was wrong and we apologise for it. And I wrote to RD and I wrote to yourself or your county board committee in relation to it. Uh, it was a simple misspeak. There was no slight intended, but I understand why a slight was taken. The committee was discussing the future of sport broadcasting. Tom, in respect of the, the, the GEA Go uh, deal, can I ask you, in terms of the 22% income that the GEA derives from uh, media partnerships, what percentage would the GEA Go aspect make up of that 22%? 10 to 15%. 10 to 15% of the overall 22% is coming from the GEA Go partnership. GEA Go income for this year will be, will be approximately £4 million. Four million is a lot of money, I suppose, in anybody's book. Uh, that's uh, the Director General of uh, the GAA, Tom Ryan. He was responding that time uh, to Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles. Shane Castles claims to have been a sports journalist. Uh, you'd have heard him uh, say that on uh, the programme yesterday. Indeed, you probably might have heard Ryan Tuberty say he believes Shane Castles was a sports journalist, if that's what Shane Castles claims, uh, one of uh, the other 
her contributions from Ryan Tuberty uh, during the week. Uh, let's speak uh, to Senator Shane Castles and indeed Independent Peter Fitzpatrick. Uh, and a very good morning to both of you. We'll talk about GAA Go in a, a moment, which is of course of huge interest to people and dominated your committee hearings yesterday. But uh, if I can begin with yourself, Peter Fitzpatrick, uh, were you satisfied uh, with uh, the response from RTE to you yesterday? No, Michael, I, I still maintain we, we never got the proper apology. There was, there was comments made on the programme that evening by the presenter, and I asked them again yesterday, and we we're still waiting to get an apology from the presenter. Like, uh, Declan, is, 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 as you know yourself, he's a local man. He, he, he lives in Monaghan, and he, he visioned from Ma And, uh, like, the position there at the moment is, as you know, Michael, uh, Loud is in the process of building his own stadium. Well, actually, uh, uh, the contractors are coming in site next next uh, Monday, and hopefully, we'll have a one stadium in the next eighteen months. Mm. We are short. We are short a bit of money, but hoping over the next maybe eighteen months or so, the shortfall we will get. Mm. But I was just very, very disappointed because Audi up, up there done a, done a fantastic job over the last two or three seasons. Uh, they, they were the home for all our home matches, and this year there was those record crowds attended Audi for like like loads in Division Two, and the games we had this year, like Cork, you had, you had, you had Cork, you had Derry. Yeah, Kildare, we had actually fantastic matches up there and were well organised. And OTE uh, uh, didn't come this year. Um, the reason didn't come this year, they were telling us that the facilities was not good enough. Yet again, they were there in the beginning of the year. They'd done a Bone Cup and yeah. they'd done a few National League games. It's just, it's just I thought, a very, very... The, the problem I have is, at the moment, I feel it's so loud, it's not getting the fair treatment we deserve up in Cole Park. And we are, we are a wee county. And I'm telling you, Michael, going forward, we're, we're going to fight our cause. We're going to get a fight our cause. Detective McBenna didn't uh, apologise to you either, did he? I mean, we heard him say there it, it, it wasn't intended to be a slight uh, and unfortunate if it was heard that way. But I, I didn't hear an apology, did I? No, Michael, no. I, I don't know what's wrong with OTE at the moment. Uh, like, 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 but, Michael, the, the, main, the, the main topic there yesterday was the GEA goal. And yeah. I, was, mm. I was very good to have OTE and the GEA in there yesterday. And, we, we, Shane and myself are part of the committee, and we had we had a fair opportunity yesterday. And I think, in fairness, we got a, we got a good response there yesterday. But I, I was I, I'm, I'm mad for the last twelve months or so. What mm. was actually happening later year? And we're, we're only a wee small county, and we are going to stand up for ourselves. And, and we are really fed up of the likes of uh, uh, OTE, uh, you know, making these comments about the wee county. We're not going to accept it anymore, Michael. Okay, uh, we'll talk about GAA Go and perhaps I can go to you now, Shane Castles, uh, because we heard Tom Ryan tell you there uh, that it, it's worth four million. I think that's uh, probably, he, he wouldn't go into the details, but probably two million uh, for the GAA, two million for RTE. Uh, but what you did establish is that broadcasting uh, accounts for 20% of GAA revenue, which is incredible. If you think back to the days when RTE opposed games being broadcast on television from Crow Park. Yeah, good morning, uh, Michael. Um, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head and that's what the whole thing was about yesterday was the future of sports broadcasting and where we're going in the country. And there were some really interesting facts thrown out. So actually, we had the three main, we just, just didn't have the GEA, the IRFU and the FAI were both there as well. And what we learned from all of them is how important uh, media rights are to their income. So the IRFU actually lead the way in terms of income. They get 25% of their revenue. So one quarter of the revenue comes from TV rights. The GEA are on 22% and the FEI are on 20%. So from all their perspectives, it's hugely important to their, to their annual income uh, and how they fund themselves. Um, and I also imagine, sorry to cut across you, but I also imagine it leads to more interest in the games and as a result of that, you have higher attendance at games, which leads to extra revenue. 
Absolutely. And look, both myself and Peter come from a generation where we can remember, and, and GA delegates would have voted on this, um, whereby there was only um, maybe three or four games shown uh, every year, and that was the two All-Ireland finals and the semi-finals. And I, I remember that well as a kid growing up. Uh, five years ago, and, and RT quoted the stats, they were showing 40 GEA games a year. They've now, uh, this year, they'll show 68 uh, live free-to-air GEA games. And that doesn't include TG Cahar, who were actually present yesterday, and they have an extensive free-to-air GEA coverage. And I'll also say that actually independent radio were represented at the hearings yesterday by the chairperson, uh, John Purcell, and they spoke about their coverage of GEA games and indeed sporting um, matters. And we know from LMFM Sport, um, you know, the huge service. I mean, we just hear at the moment the fact that the ads that are running on your station uh, all week advertising the fact that, you know, you're going to have commentary from the away match of Dundalk. Uh, you know, where else would you get that? So, I mean, mm. that, I think that has to be noted as well. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, there is a, a lot of money in this. And I suppose the question uh, that a, a lot of people were asking about GAA Go was if more money is being pocketed uh, as a result of paywalls and uh, the fact that a lot of people can't see these games. Uh, there was a question about the legality of it too and as to whether GAA Go should be available to people in this country because it was originally established, was it not, for the diaspora? Yeah, well, that was, I mean, that was the original uh, aspect and I know anyone who's who's been abroad uh, on holidays or whatever and their county is playing, it is a great service to be able to tap into and see that. I suppose the genesis of this going back, uh, we saw previously Virgin Media were involved, then Sky were involved, and last year, uh, when the contract came up for re- renegotiation, um, it, it became a, um, a, a deal between GEA Go uh, via RTE and the GEA itself. Virgin Media were actually there as well yesterday, because I think this is the bone of contention, is that, um, you know, why could the GEA not have used Virgin Media as another media partner the same way, say, the Six Nations are being broadcast over RTE and Virgin, mm. the same way soccer is being broadcast over RTE and Virgin, mm. And it was put to the GEA uh, by many of us, including myself and Peter, and to Virgin later on. Uh, and, and the GEA said that they had been in, in discussions with Virgin Media, but they, didn't, they, they weren't going to offer them the production capabilities that they wanted. Uh, and when Virgin Media came in later in the afternoon, they said that they had ceased conversations with the GEA in June of last year. Mm. So, I mean, that was, that, was, uh, that was important because I think people and are wondering... Well, what was your read on that? Could, have they the wherewithal to put the games on? Well, uh, well, they obviously do in the context that they're doing rugby, they're doing soccer, but mm. I think in the, in the context of what maybe the GA were looking for in terms of the full package, uh, obviously I'm not, I'm not technical in terms of what is required mm. in terms of television, but in terms of the outside broadcasting capabilities, uh, the GA just said from production, that they, they, or Virgin were looking for a hybrid model, which they did confirm themselves when they spoke later. Um, it is actually worth noting as well, because Sky Sports were there yesterday as mm. well, who of mm. course... Um, have, a, have a stranglehold in, 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 in Ireland as well. And the FBI were quite open because I actually questioned them on this, that they are actually in talks. They want to actually partner with Sky as well. So they were quite mm. open in saying that they wanted to see their League of Ireland matches because they wanted to use the expertise of a specialised sports broadcaster. Mm. So they actually they were very open and said, we want to do a deal with Sky. And just as an aside, Michael, and it, it, it kind of might, might have got lost yesterday, but I, I, I want to praise Daniel McDonald from the Irish Independent, the soccer writer who was there yesterday, and he did pick on up on it. When I question Sky on the fact that they are trying to lobby politicians at the moment to try and amend the gambling bill so that Sky Sports 
uh, and, their, and their subsidiary channels would be exempt for things like racing because mm. as you know we're bringing through a gambling bill yeah. it's, it's a terrible uh, disease there's and ads at the race courses they're being used as vehicles and they're actually lobbying us I have the letters where they want to be actually exited and I was, it was great to have Sky there and mm. put that to them yesterday that they're prepared to put the health and well-being of people over the income of bookies and uh, it was great that they were able to put that to them yesterday. All right. Uh, another I- issue is uh, the cost of uh, watching some sport on Sky. You raised that, Peter Fitzpatrick. You uh, talked about how you enjoy watching the golf uh, on Sky Sport but of course you've got to have um, uh, an account. You've got to pay for that uh, and not everybody can afford to. You were asking that all of the broadcasters would bring down the cost of watching sport uh, whether it's on television or through an app as the case may be Uh, what's your thoughts on GAA Go Uh, you're not its biggest critic you believe uh, that it can be good value for money well, Michael, for example, uh, if you look at the membership of the GEA, there's over 500,000 members of, of GEA and there's, there's over 1,600 uh, clubs in the country. And even look at there last year, we, we, we had 180 children, boys and girls involved in, in, in the, in the in Cattle School Camp. And in Loud alone, we had over 3,000 participants. Uh, I'm listening to people in the ground. Uh, people in the ground, they, they do want to see, they do want to see more, more, more GEA football. If you go back to the Sky deal, uh, Michael, there was 14 games roughly done, and I think that was cost roughly, roughly about 500 euros to see. Now, uh, I did, I did ask Tom Ryan yesterday, who's the managing director of, of, of the GEA. I did, I did explain him. I thought it was very expensive, especially for a one-off game of 12 euros. But Michael, I, I had a look there, and uh, I, I, I personally, if you look at it, if you decided to buy your family a, a, a season pass ticket to look at all the, 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 the GEA goal, it would cost you 59 euros. And you, you, you can see, roughly, I think there's about 42 games uh, this year, championship game live on, on, on uh, GEA goal. And, you know, and uh, a season ticket 79. But the, the one I really stuck at me was an individual game. And, and a lot of people might, might just want to see a one-off game. 12 years to me, I thought it was daylight robbery. And I did say that to him. And he, he has given me a, a serious commitment that he would have a look at it. But uh, there's, there's a contract done with OTE. And OTE have given commitment this year to show 35 games live. Mm. TG Hakawa is going to show 16. Um, but, we, but we need more. I mean, I, 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 honestly do th- like, I honestly do think that people are entitled to, uh, to you know, get free games. But the thing about Sky, I asked Sky, I asked him, and he didn't get, get I asked him how much were people uh, uh, subscribing towards Sky, and then I asked him how much was he getting for the advertisement. And I did honestly believe it. I do honestly believe that the prices that Sky are charging is, is, is colossal. And you know, and people do want to see. As I said, yeah, like I'm a sports person, but I do, I do honestly love seeing a bit of golf. And the only, the only broadcasters that seem to be doing good golf coverage is Sky. And I think it's very, very, very expensive to look mm. at Sky. And Tom Ryan of the GAA said he'd look at that 12 euro charge, and took on board what you were saying. Uh, but whether it's €12 euro or €8 euro or even annual subscription or however you uh, would like to watch GAA go, not everybody can watch it. And that is one of the big problems, whether they're tech savvy uh, and can access it or not. Even at that, sometimes people can't because they don't have the broadband. No, it, 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 that's, that's an awful shame there at the moment, Michael. The, the, the broadband, and I did raise that with, uh, with Tom and yesterday. Now, I know in County Loud there's a few GAA clubs now at the moment 
and they are allowing local people in the area to use their facilities there for the broadband connection at the moment. It's, and the, the corporate, Tom Ryan, I, I did raise something there yesterday, and I think that's something that, like as I said here, there's, there's, there's over 1,600 clubs in the country there at the moment, is, and most of them would have a good connection of broadband and it's, and I think it's very important that they work very closely with the, with the community. I know there's, there is clubs in County Loud that do let people use the, the broadband in the area. So I think that's something that GEA could do there. Mm. But, Michael, the thing is, if you look at Sky, the, the, uh, Sky was only showing 14 games. Now we're getting three times that there at the moment. But uh, as I said, yeah, things are very tough in the country, the cost of living and everything mm. else. And the GEA had, a, had a, actually a bumper year this year. The attendance at the at the National League games has been unreal. Yeah. Uh, even look at the championship. As I said earlier, broadcasting feeds into that interest. Uh, do you think that the GAA needs two million a year out of GAA Go or RTE for that matter? Could both of them uh, not reduce what they're getting out of it? I, I, I presume uh, that's a, a gross figure, but still, in all, uh, it's an awful lot of money, isn't it, for the national game? Well, I will be honest, Mike. I, I did ask Tom Ryan the, the question there yesterday. I asked him, this four million, where is the four million going? And I had a look, and, I, and, and in fairness, Michael, the money's going into a pot. It's going to do a pot to look after the players' welfare. It's given the, the, the games, the game development. It's given grants. Look, for yeah. example, now at the moment, we're building the stadium at the moment, and we're hoping to get some kind of grant money from now. Like uh, there's all different things like teams teams going away to play games of football they they be looked after do they need it do, 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 did you come to the conclusion they need two million a year from GAA go well, well Michael it, it's a big help Michael because you, 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 okay. you've got over, yeah. yeah. over 500,000 people involved with GAA and it's the, it's the grassroots because you heard me yesterday uh, challenging OT uh, Declan again about the facilities mm. I think it's very very important and now going forward you're going to have the magnification of the, 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 the ladies football the come over and hopefully down the road we're all going to be amalgamated together with and the facilities all have to be improved because at the moment is when you go to most GA clubs all they have is two dressing rooms and if you if you have games on you have boys and girls training every year so whatever, you just need facilities okay. so the GA yeah. over the next number of years has to, has to give money towards the, ground, the, the, the grassroots because it's very very important that the facilities will increase and get better and better and better okay. to sure that we all get a fair pack of the wood Let me conclude by asking Senator Shane Castles uh, the same question because uh, as a member of uh, the media committee, Senator Castles, you've had the opportunity to scrutinise this now. You're also somebody who claims to have been a sports journalist. Do you think the GAA needs the two million? Well, just uh, first of all, on that, I actually still pay my NUJ membership. uh, (laughs) I'm sure Ryan Tuberty believes you. Maybe maybe I should have shown my my, my bank account to Ryan across, although it wouldn't have been as big as his, Michael, but anyway. Sorry, I I, I tease you, but I thought it was a peculiar interaction anyway. It was, but you're luck. Mm -hmm. luck. Um, um, On the the issue of the money, actually, um, because... We questioned the RTE, we questioned RTE on, on their aspect of the money as well. And interestingly, Beckham McBennett said, any, because there's two parts of the contract, actually. So we, didn't, we actually weren't told that it was just a simple slit of uh, two and two. In fact, I don't think it is. My interpretation of that, Michael, was that it wasn't. That the four million was actually the G. The four million was was fully the GA's money. Oh, okay. Um, right. So it's it, so it's operated on a rights fee basis. So the GEA were getting four million in terms of a rights fee. Hmm. After that, there was an actual aspect of a profit share. So the GEA is potentially making earning um, an aspect from that, and then that's how RTE make the money. I pressed RTE on that, and they said that any of the money that they derive from it is actually not put back into the income sheet was actually put back into broadcasting coverage of the GEA. So they would have a contract mm. for the championship 
but they wouldn't have a contract for things like the National League and where they've extended okay. their GEA coverage back in and they're using that money to buy the rights for those games. Run that by me there. again. So so the GAA gets four million and then it also gets a cut of the profit. Well, they, so they said that they, they, the contract is operated on a... They, they're paid a rights fee by, obviously, RTE or the GAA, the GAA Gold Company and then that there's a profit share from any monies after cost that's derived from it and that RT would obviously then, I presume, have a 50% split okay. of that as well. So it really, is a signif- yeah, it really is a significant yeah. earner. Do they need so much, do you think? Oh, well, I mean, both the GEA, IRFU and FEI do immense work in our communities. Peter's after it, line. I, I, I don't have to go through that again. And as someone who was a sports journalist, over 20 years and has stood on sidelines all around the country, I see the facilities that are put in place and they are mainly derived by club players, by underage players. And when you see that happening at grassroots level and where the money goes, it is well spent. Okay, we leave there. Thank you both indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles and Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. How much is uh, the National, National Children's Hospital going to cost? Well, who can say? When will it open? <laughs> That's a, another day's work. Uh, it appears uh, that it could cost at least 2.2 billion euro and it may be the end of next year, if not the beginning of 2025, before the hospital opens its doors to patients. David Cullinan, Sinn Féin spokesperson on health is on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You heard from David Gunning, the head of the National Paediatric Hospital Development Board at the Health Committee yesterday and I think a lot of people were taken aback by what Mr Gunning had to tell you. Yeah, so unfortunately I don't have answers to those two important questions that you you put yourself, uh, uh, Michael. So first of all, we have no idea when this hospital will be built and open. We were told only a number of weeks ago when I raised concerns about 11 at the operating theatres when that story broke that uh, the completion date was going to be March of next year. Uh, very quickly uh, and, and within a week of, of that date being put out there, uh, a date of May uh, appeared and that was because there was an updated programme that was given by the contractor to the board which said the completion date would be May. The problem is the board wasn't accepting that uh, programme because they say it's non-compliant or not compliant. In other words, that they weren't satisfied that even that May date could be met. And we learned yesterday that a new updated programme would be submitted by BAM to the board next week, which will have a new completion date and a new programme of works. So we have no idea when the hospital will open. It's absolutely not going to be 2024. So I think it's certain at this point it will be sometime in 2025. Uh, And that's substantially behind where we should have been. This hospital was to be open in 2022. And on the costs, uh, what we found out yesterday is that the board have formally requested additional capital funding from the Department of Health and the HSE. We understand that that will be in the region of hundreds of millions of euro. They weren't in a position to outline what that ask is because obviously it has to go to Cabinet and Cabinet will have to approve or not that additional funding. But what's incredible is that at the same time that checkbooks have been written, more checks have been written, more money has been spent, more money and more money has been sought. Uh, 
that we have absolutely no idea not only what the final cost will be but when the completion date will be or what the what what the problem is uh, the development board says it's uh, the fault of uh, the contractor bam bam says oh no it's not uh, he said she said and do you know who to believe well, it's, it's always the truth, I suppose, is somewhere in the middle. We, we had a KPM report uh, a number of years ago uh, when uh, a crisis first emerged in the hospital in relation to cost overruns, but also timeframes not being met. And that report looked at a number of fundamental flaws in the original contract, but also a gross underestimation of costs in lots of areas. And then since then, we've had obviously high inflation, there's lots of additional claims. So astoundingly at the moment, there's about 750 million euro worth of claims which are outstanding. And, and those are claims which are submitted by BAM. And the cost is obviously coming from the volume of the claims. Obviously, they're disputed by the board, which is why we have what can only be described yesterday as almost open warfare between the board on the one hand and very strong criticism of BAM by uh, the board at the Eurostat Health Committee. And then a statement followed very quickly by BAM and countering what was being said by the board. So it is a case of he said and she said. And it, it, it is also the case that uh, the contractors have sought a design freeze. They're saying that there was 25,000 design changes, drawing changes in the project since its uh, conception, which is obviously a huge amount of changes. And they would argue that every time there is a design change, uh, that adds more money uh, on the one hand, but also it takes time to make those changes. Uh, mm. But whatever about the rights and wrongs of, of all of those issues, uh, the people responsible for delivering the project and building the project are on the one hand the board and on the other hand the contractors. Uh, and obviously the government need to make sure that both of those parties are working together uh, in the interest of children, in the interest of taxpayer to get this hospital built. Yeah. Um, if I was the Minister for Health and I, I said this to Stephen Donnelly directly and I will raise it with the Taoiseach uh, or the Taunish Day ended all today under leaders' questions. There is a responsibility on government to make sure that both the contractor and BAM are not in open warfare, that they're sitting around the table resolving these issues, coming up with a plan, um, and once and for all, give us a completion date that we can have confidence in. We don't need fictitious mm. dates for the sake of it that are then missed. We have to restore confidence uh, in the information that we're being given. And the problem, Michael, is I don't think anybody has any confidence when they hear uh, figures put out there or opening dates, that people have confidence in any of that information because every time we get a date, it changes. Mm. And every time we get a cost, it goes up. And tell me this, if they're not sitting around a table and they end up sitting, looking at each other in a, a courtroom, what will that mean? Uh, because I, I take it uh, the 750 million euro in claims that you're talking about uh, is part of that calculated final cost of 2.2 billion euro. Uh, but if uh, those claims are challenged in court, uh, what might the legal fees be? And is there the potential to increase that 2.2 billion figure uh, much further? Well, the board were very clear yesterday that there will be additional costs uh, and they weren't prepared to put a figure on us, but they were also uh, concerned that there may be more delays. And they were very clear that for every week and every month that the project is delayed, there is obviously additional costs because you still have a contractor on site. So they were very clear yesterday that they simply were not able to tell us uh, when the hospital will be open, uh, when it will be completed, uh, when they will get what they call a compliant programme of works and what the cost will be. So mm. there's so much uncertainty. 
but would it would, would it be unthinkable to think that you'd spend 750 million euro challenging 750 million uh, in claims against you? Well, it, it won't be that much. So I would okay. imagine that the uh, legal cost will be in the lower millions, but it's still substantial. Right. Uh, there is, at the moment, 2,100 claims outstanding. My understanding is a small number of those are already in the High Court. So there is a process that uh, the board and ban have to go through, and it ends up, before it goes to court, in a conciliation process. My understanding is that BAM won the vast majority of any of the cases that went to conciliation, and then they go to the High Court for final adjudication. But I also understand that uh, the board may be meeting with BAM next week uh, on the basis of trying to settle all of these claims in one go. Now, that does make sense. Uh, Obviously, there has to be a balance here between protecting the taxpayer on the one hand and making sure that we minimise costs, but also getting to a point where we can open the hospital and it was also very clear yesterday, Michael, if I could make this point, mm. because it was a very serious charge that was made by the board that uh, BAM were underperforming, essentially, not putting feet on the ground, essentially on a go-slow, um, and that that was described as a strategy or a tactic by the CEO uh, of the board. So clearly, there is a lot of tension uh, between the board and BAM. Uh, but when all of that's happening, bear in mind, there's a minister for health the Minister for Health can't be sitting on the sidelines and simply writing checks. He has to make sure and government have to make sure that they're not on the sidelines, that they're banging heads together and saying, listen, this is none of this row between the board and BAM. It's very unseemly. It doesn't suit anybody. Of course, there's rights and wrongs probably on both sides. This has to be resolved. Resolve it. Uh, come back with a, a completion date that's real, that's realistic, that can be achieved, that's not fictitious. And then we can work on making sure that that data is met and whatever the costs are, then obviously it has to be paid for. But this has become an absolute disaster as a project because you're right, the, the total cost will far in exceed 2 billion euro. And the original cost was, if you remember, 500 million euro, it went to 700 million, then a billion. So it's massively over budget. Mm. It's a huge amount of taxpayers' money. And what's being sought now is uh, permission from uh, the department and from the HSE to increase the overall expenditure cost of the hospital from 1.7 billion, I would say possibly beyond the 2 billion. And we know that we won't get much change out of that. In fact, it may be more again. So there's far too much uncertainty in relation to this project. And what we need is honesty on the one hand in relation to information we're given on completion dates and costs, and then certainty on, on those dates were given and unfortunately both of those were absent and have been absent from this project for some time mm. Are we going to repeat this mistake or learn from our lessons when it comes to the National Maternity Hospital? Well I think that phrase learning lessons really drives people mad I think what people want is accountability in the first instance they want to make sure that right now when we're dealing with this hospital that we uh, have that level of honesty and certainty and professionalism uh, on all sides, but also urgency from government. And yes, uh, I think there was big mistakes in relation to this project. If you go back to that KPMG report I was talking about, uh, that goes back to what was called a two-stage contract. Uh, there was a lot of gaps in it in terms of design changes weren't factored in. And as I said, there was about 25,000 of those. There was a gross underestimation of costs. There was provisional sums that were included for uh, major parts of the works that uh, ended up in multiples of that and that was a quite hard-hitting critical report of the process and that responsibility rests with government uh, and with cabinet who signed off on that so absolutely as we embark now as you know on the mm. national maternity hospital 
we have to make sure that we're not in the same situation here and we don't have more cost overruns. But there's also uh, changes that need to be made to the tendering process because um, I, I certainly don't want to call into question the professionalism of any company or contractor because I, obviously we all have to be careful on, on that score. Um, but if there is major problems with any contractor, whoever that contractor may be in terms of lowballing, if you like, on, on the, the quote and then trying to make up the difference on claims. Uh, and I'm not saying that's what's happening here necessarily, but if, 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 that, if there was evidence of that anywhere, then that surely should be taken into account uh, when the state is tendering for big projects. So I think there's lots of things that need to change. Uh, and we need a government, quite frankly, that is much better at spending taxpayers' money because simply writing checks, sitting on the sidelines and watching as both major parties in terms of BAM and the board engage in open warfare is certainly not what the public wants uh, and I think the Minister certainly needs to intervene. Mm. And children uh, need this hospital as they have needed it for the last 25 years. David, we leave it there for the moment. Thank, Thank you, you Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's Sinn Féin spokesperson on health, David Cullinan. Now, if you want to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 041-983-2000. That's 983-2000, 041-983-2000, if you want to ring us today. Text or WhatsApp 86 That's 0861800658. And you can email Michael at lmfm.ie. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Sharon. Good to hear from you again, Sharon. And uh, thanks, as I say, for your text. Uh, Sharon says, I know it's a, a lot of money. Uh, this is uh, the National Children's Hospital and that it should have been finished a long time ago. But it, it will be worth it when it is finished, unlike what the national broadcaster Top Scroungers and their cronies have spent on themselves having a good time on taxpayer money. At least some good will come from this massive, disgraceful overspend. Sharon and Tara Nabin, thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme uh, this morning. Michael, I don't understand uh, that last conversation about the hospital, says another call, caller. Is it just basically that the building firm uh, keep delaying it and then demanding more and more money for doing so it's very distressing for families with sick children who are waiting on a proper facility thank you indeed I'm not going to answer that question uh, because I'm not sure who can answer it other than the hospital development board and BAM the contractor the problem here is that they're both blaming each other. Uh, The hospital is saying uh, that it's the contractor, uh, they're not putting enough people at work, they're on a go slow, all that sort of stuff, which is a a very serious accusation. Bam, the contractor says, no, that's not the case at all, that's just total rubbish. Uh, They keep changing the designs, they keep doing this, that and the other, uh, and um, as a a result of that, uh, we're making claims uh, for what it's costing us, that's that's 750 million euro. Uh, I mean... I don't know. David Cullinan doesn't know. The minister doesn't know. Uh, I think uh, it's about time that we all knew. And uh, I think it's a very, very valid question and one that we'd all like the answer to. Uh, On GAA Go, somebody says, I haven't heard anyone mention the elderly or pensioners who don't have broadband or sky to watch games. Uh, I hope uh, we're listening after that because uh, there certainly was mention of it uh, and indeed the problems that people have. Uh, Peter Fitzpatrick was talking about 
uh, groups coming together to share broadband uh, in order to uh, be able to watch GAA go. Uh, Day- Darren, it is, Andrade says, I uh, got a, a fire stick with IPTV and I can get it for free. I presume that's GAA go that he's getting for free. Interesting. Um, probably not legal, Darren, uh, but I think people will be interested in what you're saying. A fire stick with IPTV and you can get it for free. Okay, thank you indeed. Uh, an Avon listener wants to know why did loyalists feel it necessary to burn an image of the first minister, Michelle O'Neill of Sinn Fein? Why? Is she such an annoyance to them? I wonder. She's the phoenix rising from the flames, maybe, says our listener. Uh, thanks indeed. I think I probably can answer that question, uh, but I think you already know the answer and uh, probably uh, no point uh, in trying to answer it because I'm sure everybody knows uh, the answer. It's uh, that age-old hatred uh, that stems uh, from 800 years of British occupation, isn't it? Carmel MacDonald, thank you indeed uh, for your WhatsApp message to the programme she says uh, when it comes uh, to the children's hospital the test of time has confirmed that this was a case of go fever as serious concern and opposition to the location intensified the decision to break ground was made to the financial cost and delay on everyone's mind but the fact is the brief has not and will not be delivered despite the spend Leo Vradker's announcement was for the long promised three in one hospital i.e. adult children's and a life-saving corridor linked maternity hospital thank you Carmel as I say for your WhatsApp message our, our lines are open if you want to make comments we'll come to more comments later in the programme today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Nature Restoration Bill has uh, cleared uh, the European Parliament. What next? Well, Karen Coleman, editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations, joins us. A very good morning to you, Karen. Thanks uh, for your time today. Most controversial piece of legislation, narrowly voted in favour of by 336 MEPs uh, against 300. 13 abstentions uh, and it will become law. What will that mean for Irish farming now? Well, it's going to have, um, there'll be a lot of, I think, um, one of the uh, ministers uh, suggested yesterday, twists and turns on this very controversial piece of um, proposed legislation originally proposed last June by the European Commission. And in fact, before that overall vote that you mentioned yesterday in the European Parliament in Strasbourg, Michael, was an earlier vote on whether or not to completely ditch uh, the bill. And this had been pushed by the European People's Party group, which of course is the biggest European uh, political group in in the EU. They wanted to ditch the bill in its entirety. Fina Gael is a member of that group. But in the end, that was narrowly defeated. Um, The majority, 324 against 312 and 12 abstentions. And then in between that initial uh, rejection to ditch it and the final acceptance of the overall proposal, there were votes on, I think, hundreds of amendments that were put through, um, some rejected, some accepted. So the whole thing, um, you know, has had a, a, a lot of, of changes to it from the original European Commission proposal. Of course, inevitably, there are people happy with this. There are people unhappy with it, depending on who you speak to, from farmers mm. very wary of the proposals to environmentalists believing it has been watered down. So what happens now is we, we enter a stage of what they call trialogue. So the European Parliament yesterday 
adopted its overall position, including all of these amendments that were accepted. And it goes into talks now with the European Commission, which has its its own views on this, and the European Council, of course, representing the member states. I would imagine there will be a lot of haggling, a lot of disagreements, a lot of politicking going back and forth until there is some final agreement on this. And ex- that's expected mm. maybe towards the end of the year. Fine Gael has managed to confuse uh, a lot of people in terms of uh, the position it uh, adopted in relation to this law when it was being proposed with MEPs uh, appearing to act uh, at odds with government policy the official government policy was that it supported the legislation, although that came into question when the Taoiseach said he felt that it had gone too far on occasion. And it seemed that the Fine Gael MEPs, as part of the EPP, would block it indeed, uh, did so at committee level whenever possible. Uh, they were told uh, to block it yesterday by the EPP uh, and uh, they defied that and voted in favour of it. Yes, this was a really, really, really interesting twist in all of this because normally, especially with a really tight, controversial political vote like this, the groups like to try and rein in as many of their MEPs as possible. There isn't a whip process as such, so MEPs can vote whatever way they think. Um, But with something as so fraught with political tension in this. Uh, Manfred Weber, the leader of the European uh, People's Party group in the Parliament, was very, very strongly against this and was trying to get as many of the MEPs in the group as possible to reject it. And Mm. as you say, in the end, the Irish, the five Irish MEPs, members of the EPP group, voted for the proposal. Very controversial because, of course, they were pitched on the one hand Um, with the Irish government, as you said, uh, albeit with reservations, voting and wanting this bill through. And on the other hand, their political... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Group 
against it. Um, and up to, I think, you know, the final few days, it was unclear what way they were going to vote. But in the end, all of the 13 Irish MEPs voted in favour of the bill. Um, I'm sure Manfred Weber and those in favour of it against it were very unhappy with this. There were a few others, I think, from the EPP group who either abstained or who also voted um, in favour of it as well. So the EPP mm. group failed to pull the entire EPP MEPs with, behind it. And I think that, in the end, swung the vote in favour of the bill. Independent TD and Kerry Michael Healy Ray told the Taoiseach not that long ago that if uh, the Fine Gael MEPs voted in favour of this legislation that Fine Gael uh, would, or people would go to the ballot box uh, feeling that they'd rather get bubonic plague than vote for a Fine Gael <laughs> in the local and European uh, elections. Uh, will that be the case or has that been addressed uh, because of the huge concern that there was about re-wetting? Well, let's hope we don't have another plague on our continent. Um, uh, you know, there are going to be people who are very unhappy, as I said. The farming groups, the sheep groups, the, the, the milking groups, you know, they've expressed uh, concerns and reservations about this all the way through. Um, and on the other hand, you have groups like Birdwatch, you have environmentalists and others who say it's been watered down completely. Uh, the parliament compromised the bill. Um, so, of course, there will be people unhappy and uh, and people who are mildly happy. I mean, there are others who are ecstatic because when the bill was finally passed in the European Parliament yesterday, um, you know, there were many people supporting the rapporteur of the, the, the bill from, from the Parliament and very happy with this. Um, so this is the way many of these bills get passed through the political process. It's wheeling and dealing. It's lobbying groups trying to get what they want and others trying to get what they want. And in the end, it is a compromise. Whether it will affect the parliamentary elections next year, that's very debatable. Um, there are, as I said, many talks that will be taking place over the coming months to try mm. and get the best deal possible. The Irish farming lobby will obviously be leaning on their MEPs to try and see if they can ensure what they want will get through in the final bill. Um, obviously, it'll be up to those Irish MEPs to articulate as strongly as possible how they think they're going to be able to get as much as possible for their constituents. Interesting turn um, of phrase that you use, Karen, saying that the bill had been watered down because uh, the controversial aspect has been the re-wetting of land. <laughs> and uh, it, it appears uh, that farmers uh, may not be forced to re-wet their lands, which really was of huge concern. Yes, that was a huge concern. And that proposal to, um, you know, include compulsory re-wetting and other measures which would have been targeted at the agri-sector was finally removed. Now, of course, environmentalists will say that's a shame. Um, these uh, lands needed to be re-wetted, if that's the correct word, to ensure habitats can thrive again. Mm. Um, but obviously the farmers had concerns about that. And, and that is what happens when you have these very, very, um, at times, quite oppressive, some might say, bills coming through, which will force various groups to do things mm. that they are very unhappy about. The farmers would have argued, of course, this is a big point uh, put forward by Manfred Weber, that it's going to affect food production security. It would have affected the livelihoods or could affect the livelihoods of farmers, of those involved in forestry and, of course, in the fishing 
fishing industries as well. Um, so some aspects of it, like that one about rewetting, mm. have been removed. I think also there'll be issues about to what extent will member states have their own say in what aspects of the bill can be, um, will be obligatory or could be voluntary. All that will have to be worked out as well, Michael. On a national basis, okay. Yes. Uh, any idea yes. what Greta Thunberg uh, made of uh, the final draft of the legislation? Because she turned a bit in Strasbourg asking MEPs to vote in favour of it. Yes, I wasn't in Strasbourg far as I was uh, watching from afar and I'd love to have seen Uh, Greta Thunberg um, and her other fellow environmentalists who had gathered outside the European Parliament building in Strasbourg. Many of them turned up. They were wearing T-shirts, as indeed I think some of the, the, they definitely were some of the MEPs in the Parliament itself about, you know, wanting to pass the nature restoration law. I mean, she was very much in support of it. I'm sure once she goes back and and looks at the the nitty gritty details of the amendments that were put through, because I mean, it it was something else watching the number of amendments that are being put through, some being passed, some not being passed. I think it will probably take many days, if not weeks, to really scrutinise the entire text as passed yesterday. But she had wanted it to be passed. I mean, Mm. the danger, of course, these things get watered down. That's that's the reality of politics, especially at a European level and with issues as controversial as this. But on the other hand, if the whole thing had been rejected and there was that possibility, I mean, that initial vote, whether or not to reject the entire thing, was extremely close. Had it been rejected, that was it. That would have been the end of it. Mm. And remember now, come September, we are going to be facing electioneering at large for the European Parliament elections next June. And then a new European Commission will come in place following those elections. And and that could bring about a change in Mm. in some of the huge issues that have been pushed through by this European Commission. Or result in a plague, (laughs) as has been claimed. (laughs) Hopefully not, possibly, Mm. yes. All right, so, Karen. You know, that's the reality. All right, listen, thank you very much. We leave it there for the moment. And uh, thanks, as I say, for joining us today. Karen Coleman, editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU News for Irish radio stations. Now, I'm going to uh, bring you just one comment uh, before the break and come to more comments uh, later. Uh, but uh, this is uh, a long comment that comes from Caroline, who says, Good morning, Michael. Perhaps unrelated, but seeing as Peter Fitzpatrick was on your show again this morning, I just want to say how terribly disappointed I was to observe the appalling behaviour of some of uh, the committee members towards Ryan Tuberty on Tuesday. Just to mention to Caroline, there were two committees uh, which uh, heard from Ryan Tuberty, the Public Accounts Committee and the Media Committee. Peter Fitzpatrick was on the Media Committee. She says the tone when used to speak to Mr Tuberty and his agent was so disrespectful and utterly unprofessional to many of us listening and watching. It is possible to ask very difficult questions in a straightforward and professional manner. From the outset, it was clear that Peter Fitzpatrick and many others had no interest in getting answers because, in their minds, they already had the answers. In the words of my 87-year-old mother, it was like a kangaroo court set up by our country's so-called leaders. Don't get me wrong, I admire the work that the committees do, 
and they are there to tackle difficult issues but they need to realise they're not judge and jury and everyone should be treated with dignity, respect and in a professional manner. Let me end by saying as a proud Louth woman I was embarrassed by Peter Fitzpatrick's performance, tone of voice and attitude that day. Not his finest moment and he certainly does not represent me in any shape, way or form. Some of our public representatives would do well to remember. Many of them have skeletons in their own cupboards with with regards to the misuse of public monies in relation to travel expenses, undeclared interests and planning permissions, employment of family members and public positions, etc. It doesn't cost anything to have a, a little bit of common courtesy, respect, professionalism and dignity when speaking on behalf of the public. I wonder would the tone have been different if that inquiry had not been broadcast? It smacks of public representatives trying to tick a box and make a name for themselves. Says Caroline in her text, Many thanks uh, for sending us that and taking the time to write it. It was a a long text, Caroline, but it is very much appreciated. Uh, I'm not sure that it's accurate. We leave that up to other people to decide for themselves. I I certainly didn't see it that way myself. I thought Peter Fitzpatrick uh, put questions uh, to uh, the people, Brian Tuberty and Noel Kelly, and gave them plenty of time to answer. In actual fact, I think some uh, of uh, the times uh, there were interruptions, but understandably so because of uh, the way these committees are constructed and the TDs or senators only have a limited amount of time. And if uh, the witnesses go on and on and on, uh, their time is over uh, and there's nothing that they can do about it. They can't claim back that time. Uh, But actually, it's odd that you send the text to us, Caroline, because we heard from a a number of people over the last couple of days who felt that Ryan Tuberty was talking down to Peter Fitzpatrick and indeed at times to some of the other TVs. But thank you, as I say, for your text. Our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Many people in uh, this country are trapped in poverty. The reason that they are trapped in poverty is because social welfare or low pay means uh, that uh, they do not have uh, the wherewithal to afford uh, the basics that people should expect and this damages their physical and mental health. That's uh, according to the Society of St. Vincent de Paul in their pre-budget submission where they say that the course of this year They've received over 100,000 requests for help from families who cannot afford life's basic essentials. Let's speak to Marcella Stakem, Research and Policy Officer with Vincent de Paul. Good morning to you, Marcella. Thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What's the solution to this? Hello, Marcella. Yes. Oh, good morning to you. Hi, Michael. I, I say, what's the solution to this? Well, I think for this budget, um, the government has to protect... Um, those that are experiencing poverty and the daily struggles that poverty entails. So, for example, there are thousands of people uh, in our society at the moment that aren't able to afford the essentials like heating, food and to be able to light their homes. So we really need to get to address those issues um, you know, in this budget. And we need to see the progress on structural issues like income inadequacy, low pay and underfunded public services that are trapping people in the cycle of poverty. 
So, for example, some of the, the recommendations that we have put forward in our pre-budget submission is to see an increase in, in core social welfare rates. And we have recommended that there be an increase of €27.50 in core social welfare rates. That's um, a, an incredible increase, isn't it, uh, by normal standards? Yeah, uh, but like uh, anything less would be a real term cut. And this increase would only really restore the real value of core working age payments to 2020 levels. And that is because of the significant cost of living crisis that we are we're living through and low income house, households, um, many of whom have come to us, you know, in the, in the last number of years are the ones that are being severely impacted by by high inflation rates. Mm. And just to put in context, the the, the cost of of a basket of goods needed to ensure a minimum essential standard of living has risen by almost 20% since 2020. So, Mm. you know, we're, we're talking about people that are, you know, faced with very, very difficult, difficult choices. Every day. Every day. 875,000 people, as you say, in your submission, according to the CSO's survey of income and living conditions. The Silk data says 875,000, which is close to a fifth of the population, are going without basic items like heating, nutritious food or suitable clothing. That's shameful, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're very concerned that we're... We're particularly concerned about the children that live in those households um, because we do know that, you know, children that are affected by poverty early in their lives, it has a negative impact for right throughout their lives. It's very difficult for them to participate fully in society as children, but also as adults as well. So we really need to see a budget this year that, you know, puts children front and centre of this of of the of this budget, mm. uh, one in five children are now living in enforced deprivation, and we have seen a sixty four percent increase in child homelessness just in one year. So, the the figures are very worrying and they're very stark. But we we do know that the government are capable of making decisive and ambitious um decisions uh when the need when they needed and we've seen that during the pandemic when they did increase social welfare rates uh so that you know people could could still live uh with a sense of dignity and respect and we are asking that the, you know and recommending that 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 decisiveness and mm-hmm. that ambition needs to be followed through again uh, in this budget. We're halfway through the year and uh, I mentioned at uh, the outset uh, that you've already received 100,000 requests for help. Uh, I was shocked by that uh, until I read that last year you received 230,000 requests for help. Yeah, uh, unfortunately our our requests are every year are continuing to rise. I suppose you know, we do feel privileged that we are able to to help and support uh, families. But really, you know, our, one of our core missions is is that we would promote self sufficiency, and we want families and households to be able to fully participate in society. And without you know in, inadequate or without an adequate income and without accessible and affor- mm. affordable services. That that can't happen. So as well as you know, in, increasing core uh, social welfare rates, we would like to see 
you know, changes and improvements made to our public services. So, for example, our education system, um, SVP, we're very passionate about, you know, promoting um, access and participation in education because we really believe and our members really believe that that can be a route out of poverty. Mm. So we would like to see, you know, additional investment put in there right from the very by the beginning. State. By the state. Yeah. Uh, by the state, uh, yeah. r- Rather than people relying on charity. Uh, and I, I think everybody just has enormous respect for St. Vincent de Paul. I'm very thankful that you're there to do the work that you do, uh, but would prefer if you weren't needed. But when it comes to education, St. Vincent de Paul spent 4.3 million euro supporting access to education last year. Uh, it's incredible the generosity of people, but the way you spend so much money indicates the poverty and deprivation that people are, are living in in one of the wealthiest countries in the world. 14.7 million, you say, uh, helping people to buy food. 4.3 million to help people with the cost of electricity and gas 14.7 million for clothing and furniture thank god you're there yeah like like our members will always say they feel very privileged that they can do the work that they do and that they are invited into people's homes they are in a very privileged position and they do feel very grateful that they can do that and the only reason they can do that is from the generosity of the public and um you know, they they hope to continue to do that. But at the same time, we really feel that, you know, uh, the state and our government really needs to put additional investment into people and to give them the the resources themselves to be able to, to participate fully in society. So just going back to education there, um, as I said, our members are really passionate about promoting that. And we can, we can make changes there. And we were very... Um, I suppose happy and um, hopeful for the future that there will be further changes there at primary school level when uh, the government introduced free school books. That has been a very positive initiative and our the households that we support, you know, are very grateful for that. And we would like to see that being rolled out um, this year and in this budget to post-primary education so that all children and all young people can participate on an equal basis uh, while they're in school um, by having their own books and um, having free school books because that's, you know, very important for children and young people that they are all participating on an equal footing and that they have what the next person has and having their own books um, really is, you know, vital. Mm. Okay, well, 2750 uh, is what you'd like uh, core welfare rates to be increased by and uh, a 40 euro weekly increase in disability as well. I think um, we there's a lot more to your uh, submission as well, Marcella, uh, but uh, that's the time that we have uh, today. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. Thank you. Thank you indeed. Marcella Stakem, Research and Policy Officer with uh, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a story that dates back to 1972, a story about a sexual deviant who took advantage of little boys, little boys aged between six and eight. Exactly how many little boys Jack Manning abused 
is unknown, but in 2021, Manning pleaded guilty to nine counts of indecently assaulting four children. Manning was sentenced to three years in prison. The four children who Manning abused were all in the same class at Westland Row, CBS in Dublin. Jack Manning was their teacher. Manning was a Christian brother. In 1972, he sexually abused all of the little boys in his class. Given the deranged behaviour Manning admitted to, it is probably fair to conclude that he sexually abused the primary school boys he taught before then and after. It is a horrible story that is now being told by four men in their 50s who waived their right to anonymity following Manning's conviction and his sentence to three years in prison so that Jack Manning could be identified. They remember how Manning would call up his students to his desk to correct their homework. There, they say, Manning would touch the students' private parts beneath their trousers. Little boys, aged between six and eight. They remember a day in the playground when Manning had a group of boys run around the schoolyard naked. Afterwards, he tell-droid them with interfering with the children, touching them all over. One of the boys told his parents about Manning's abuse. They complained to the school, but Manning was allowed to remain as a teacher. That boy felt incredibly uncomfortable and unsafe as a child in Manning's classroom. He says he had no other option but to leave school before he completed his junior cert. A different boy says he often skipped school to avoid being in Manning's class. The abuse, he says has had a profound impact upon him and he continues to experience flashbacks that have only increased since the criminal court proceedings against Manning. Both boys say they were sexually abused by Manning on a consistent and regular basis when they were in his class in 1972. Those two boys who Jack Manning admitted to sexually abusing are now suing Manning. They are also suing brother Edmund Garvey, who was uh, the province leader of uh, the Christian Brothers as well as the Department of Education. Brother Edmund Garvey, the province leader, was born in Drogheda in 1945. In 1997, Brother Edmund Garvey was awarded with the Freedom of uh, the City Honour in Drogheda. Last month, the Irish Times reported that the case against Garvey is being taken by Thomas O'Callaghan of Ratoth in County Mead and Kieran Best of Talla in Dublin. That's a civil case against Brother Edmund Garvey that is being taken alongside a, can, a case against the uh, paedophile brother Jack Manning and the department. The case against Brother Edmund Garvey is complicated. There is no accusation of wrongdoing in any way whatsoever against Garvey. It is alleged, however, that the Christian brothers failed in their duty of care to the boys sexually abused by Jack Manning. The Irish Times reports uh, that today the two men are seeking damages for alleged sexual assault, infliction of emotional suffering and breach of statutory duty, among other things. Brother Edmund Garvey is named in the actions as he is uh, the European province leader. He's chosen not to select a person to act as a nominee in the proceedings. This position that Garvey has chosen to adopt will delay the men's civil case, effectively denying the men justice for as long as possible. 
Brother Edmund Garvey's legal strategy is perfectly legal, but it has been widely condemned. Last month, the High Court heard it was regrettable that Garvey has adopted this position and as a result, Mr Justice Tony O'Connor directed Brother Garvey to provide the plaintiffs, Thomas O'Callaghan and Kieran Best, with the names of every member of the congregation during 1972 and 1973. Journalist Eleanor Reardon explained in the Irish Times that this was because of a Supreme Court ruling in 2017 that unincorporated associations such as religious orders cannot be sued directly and that cases must be brought against the members of the order at the time of the alleged wrongdoing. A congregation can select someone to act as its nominee, but the Christian Brothers has opted not to do this. The decision means the plaintiffs have to sue all members of the order from the time of the abuse. Keep in mind, Jack Manning pleaded guilty to nine counts of indecently assaulting four of his pupils, little boys aged between six and eight. He admitted to the full facts of the prosecution's case. Suing all of the members of the Christian Brothers Order from the time of the abuse is going to take many years. It is absolutely not necessary. It would not be necessary if Brother Edmund Garvey simply selected someone to act as a nominee for the brothers but he's choosing not to delaying justice in what can only be described as a cruel and calculated position that will no doubt have a significant impact on men now in their 50s who have been struggling to come to terms with how they were sexually abused since the abuse occurred when they were little boys in 1972 the Irish Times report tells us that Connor Duff, instructed by Connolly O'Neill solicitors for the plaintiffs, told the High Court that Brother Garvey has completely ignored correspondence from their legal team asking for a nominee or the names of every Christian brother member during the times of the abuse. This was a regrettable position, said Mr Duff, who asked the court to compel Brother Garvey to provide a list of names. Counsel for the province leader said he was adopting a neutral stance on the application. Mr Justice O'Connor made the direction sought by the the plaintiffs. The same judge recently made a similar order in another damages case brought against the congregation over sexual abuse by Paul Hendrick, a retired Christian brother who also taught at Westland Row. Mr Justice O'Connor's order in that case led to, to the addition of 118 new defendants. Paul Hendrick was jailed this week for four years for sexually abusing boys in the 1980s. This legal strategy will delay the Christian brothers having to pay compensation to men. Men, it failed as little boys when they were in the care of the Christian Brothers. Good, perhaps, for the Christian Brothers' bank balance, morally unacceptable to the victims. Victims of sexual abuse by Christian Brothers are now asking Louth County councillors to hear them, to support them, to write to the Brothers and condemn the legal strategy, and also to rescind the freedom of the city bestowed on Brother Edmund Garvey in Drogheda, as Garvey is the man who instigated the strategy that is causing so much pain and distress. Once again, we're joined by Damien O'Farrell, who's an independent councillor himself in Dublin, somebody who's been abused by Christian Brothers and represents many of the victims. And a very good morning to you, Damien, and thank you indeed for coming in to us this morning on the programme. Because, as I say, the councillors in Louth are to be asked to write to the Brothers and condemn the strategy as well as approve rescinding the freedom of the city on Brother Edmund Garvey in Drogheda. Uh, that's something that will be debated on Monday of next week. 
That's right, Michael, and thank you. I suppose the substantive issue here now is the choices of Brother Garvey. Um, they're not victim-focused. They're focused on the order and retaining the finances of the order. They're not victim-focused. They're wrong on every level, both morally and Christian. Uh, it's a total opposite of the Christian values that was that the founder of the Christian Brothers, Edmund Rice, set up the organisation, a fantastic organisation over the years. They've been fantastic, but the leadership have let them down. Brother Garvey has let them down. And he's let down his, his, his own members, but most of all, he's let down the victims. And the men that you talk about, I'd like to come back to them. I'd like to talk about the consequences for them. They were abused, manipulated as children, but now they're being further manipulated as adults through the courts. And the consequences are over many years. These guys want to get into therapy. They want to get on with their lives, but they're being manipulated. They're losing control. Uh, they have physical manifestations of trauma. I've been with them in court. And it's just an absolute terrible, um, it's a terrible situation. And Brother Garvey, had, he presided over the instigation of that in full knowledge, in full knowledge. A government minister has written to him, I've written to him. And there's, there's nothing, there's no change. And I'm, we're asking the councillors um, to send a message to Brother Garvey to take the freedom. They, this, this town, Drada, they continue to, um, to continue to honour Brother Garvey, they continue to honour, and we're asking them to take that honour back, to show a message from society that's not acceptable, to stand up for the victims all around the country, the tens and tens of victims that are going through the courts with the brothers, victims from Louth and Meath as well. You mentioned you mentioned a guy there from Rathout. To stand up for those people, stand up for those people and send a message to this order that it's not acceptable. Okay. Uh, we'll hear more about what's being asked of uh, the councillors and indeed how the executive at Louth County Council has been behaving in relation uh, to the motion that's been proposed over a number of months when we come back after the break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Back uh, with uh, Damien O'Farrell, we're talking about uh, the abuse of little children by Christian brothers uh, that has been proven in a court of law and the right of those children now as men to seek legal redress, which is being blocked and thwarted by the Christian brothers. Good for their bank balance, not good for the well-being of the people who were abused at the hands of Christian brothers. As we were saying before the break, Damien, um, there's going to be a, a motion put to Louth County Councillors on Monday at the local authority meeting. And you have a message for those councillors this morning. Yeah, I suppose we're looking really for support. And we, we haven't really had support up to now. And I, I talked to the, to the public as well, public in Drogheda and Dundalk, particularly in Drogheda, we haven't had support from, from any of the councillors, really, in Drada, both urban and rural. And we're looking for support. We're looking for you to stand up for survivors. Um, nothing will happen to you. Nothing will happen to um, Brother Garvey either. He's, he's not going to jail or anything. There's no, there's no aspersions on his character or anything. You'll just be sending a message from society, a civilised society, to an order to say that this is not, this is not the way that you treat young people. And you mentioned those those men there. One of those men there, Ken Grace, uh, he he achieved a conviction during the week. Incidentally, um, the, the person that was convicted for him, he'll be in, in jail at the same time. The, both the principal of the primary school and the secondary school are now in jail in, in Western Row at the same time. But Ken ha, has been four years in the civil courts. Four years. Mm. Um, and, and in Article 6 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, a person's civil rights, everyone is entitled to a fair and public hearing within a reasonable time. Now, four years is not a reasonable time. Four years to serve the summonses. Mm. 
So this takes um, Ken away from his family. He's in an emotional state that his um, that he wouldn't be there. He'd be physically there with, with his children and his wife, but he wouldn't be emotionally there. Mm. Now, wives of victims around the country, s- several wives wrote to the councillors to express that, to, to, get a, to, to look for support. We, we had a meeting in the, uh, the Boyne Valley Hotel there a couple of months ago to ask councillors to come along. Five count, they got nine days um, notice of the meeting and five councillors turned up. And I want to, I want to thank those councillors for, for turning up and giving their time. Um, but only five turned up mm. of, of 29. And I, I want to speak to the public. Well, is there, yeah. is there, so, sorry for... Uh, um, uh, 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 and Ken's abuse was horrific. It was it was absolutely horrific. Whipped um, in a dungeon, wasn't he? He was whipped in a dungeon. The guy, the Christian brother, um, Paul, Paul Henrik, who was on the leadership team, mm. um, working with um, Brother Garvey, Mm. on the leadership team and probably had a part of the decision in making this litigation strategy yeah. wore a thong a leather thong with a zip to the front they both were no clothes only for the he had the leather thong and Ken had just his underwear on I believe and he whipped him with a cat of nine tails mm. when he was a 13 year old right. and this went on every week for his whole secondary school education completely perverted mm. and now he's married and mm. he has children and he's trying to get on with his life mm. And through the actions of Brother Garvey, a free man of Drada, mm. through the decisions made by Brother Garvey, yeah. a free man of Drada, mm. Ken's agony is mm. being prolonged yeah. and he can't get into treatment. Maybe people listening to us uh, this morning would think about uh, their 13-year-old child or 13-year-old grandchild or their 6-year-old, 7-year-old, 8-year-old child, uh, as we heard earlier on, or in the case of uh, Ken's case, uh, when he was abused, whipped like that at uh, 13 years of age for the sexual gratification of Hendrick. Uh, and then when now uh, he's a mature man trying to uh, get justice for the wrong that was done to him, uh, he has to sue 115 people. I was amazed to read that, 115 people who had nothing to do with his abuse. Yeah, that's right, because Brother Garvey wouldn't hand over, wouldn't stand up to nom- take the nomination himself when he was the leader of the brothers. He wouldn't do that. And then he wouldn't uh, give the addresses over of the brothers. And then he had, Ken had to go to court to get the addresses. And then when the addresses, some of them were wrong, some of them, the brothers had moved in the period, you know, so then he had to go back and get go back to court again mm. to get the addresses again. Some of the brothers were in different jurisdictions, so he had to go back to court again to mm. find out. In France, he had to serve summons as high to that. In, mm. in, in the north of Ireland, uh, there's the 32 county orderly. Mm. He had to serve summons as up there, but there's a different, uh, it's a different jurisdiction. And legally. we're going back 50 years. I we're mean, some of these people who are Christian brothers aren't Christian brothers yeah, now. Some of them are dead. Some of them yeah, have yeah. Uh, dementia. They're in nursing homes and so yeah. on. Had to go to court as well. So mm. The dead Christian brothers, they had to find uh, they, to, to, where their estates went. The brothers knew that the, the heads of the order. No way, really. All the estates mm. went back to, the, it was Brother Gibson then as the head yeah. of the order, but he wasn't saying that, mm. so they had to go get discovery. Yeah. They found land, I believe, recently belonged to the brothers that they didn't know about before. Hectares of... Um, oh, sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking of people listening now. I, I, I'm confused. I, mm. I'm bamboozled by what you're mm. saying. And the idea mm. of trying to track down that 115 people in order to take my case is well beyond me. I'd have given up long mm. ago at this And this, as I said at the beginning, this not, it's not victim-focused. But is that the idea? That, that that's the idea. Up? Yeah, you'd well, that's the, they are giving up. They are giving up. Victims, they are giving up. And their solicitors are giving up as well, some of them, and they want to go to mediation. They don't want to use the court system. Mm. And victims are entitled to use the court system. And I was in correspondence with Brother Garvey previously. And he sort of, where I got back, that it was like the victim's fault Mm. that they were taking the cases. These guys that have been um, 
had been abused, been raped, been whipped, been tortured. Like, it was their fault for taking the cases. If they didn't take the cases, mm. there'd be no problem. And this is all to protect the bank balance of the Christian Well, brothers. I would think so. I don't. The, I can't the, think of any other reason. The, the former Chief Justice, Frank Clark, condemned this uh, on the RTE primetime programme that you featured in, uh, and uh, indeed many people would uh, have heard. It's been condemned far and wide, in fact, hasn't it? Yeah, well, he, he was good enough to come onto the programme because he felt strongly about this. And he said, justice delayed is justice denied. Well, this is a delay and a half. Yeah. And he said it was a choice by the brothers, a choice. This mm. legal strategy was a choice. And, and Brother Garvey uh, took that choice, took that choice. A government minister wrote to him in, in uh, 2020 to, to set this out. Finley McGrath, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, right. And, and Brother Garvey just wrote back and he, he said he sent the letter to a solicitor to, to look. And then when we got back a few months later to find out uh, what was happening, mm. we, we didn't get a, re- a response then right. after that. Okay. They know. And... Uh, 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 Loud County Council um, pulled this motion at one stage, didn't it? Do you, do you know well, why they pulled that? I don't know. Um, are, they, are, they, are they embarrassed? Um, they, they don't want to... Is it because it's a local person? I think so. Oh. I think so. I think right. it's, it's, they might feel it's embarrassing on their town. Um, they don't want to speak about it. Um, letters that... There's a precedent for putting letters from public reps about reserve functions onto the correspondence, onto the agenda. Right. Peter Casey, when he was looking to be a presidential yeah. election, so when I wrote to the council, that letter wasn't put on the agenda. Right. I wrote to them last October. I wrote to the chair, the co-herlock co- mm. of Lecco, that, 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 it wasn't put on the it wasn't put on the um, on the agenda. And then when I sent a follow up letter to all the councillors, to the mayor of of Drogheda and the councillors in Drogheda, and not one of them responded. Not mm. one of them got back to me. Mm. I wanted them to reconsider their decision. I wanted them mm. to consider writing to, to the to the bro- to the brothers mm. to do something for the victims. Mm. Victims have been trying to meet councillors to no avail. That's why we had to have mm. the meeting. That's why we had to have the meeting in the Boyne Valley to invite the councillors to do that. Mm. Because as I said, we gave nine days notice, five turned up. Mm. But look, that's all that's all water under the bridge now. There's mm. there's a meeting on there. There's a there's a motion down and, and I want to thank um Maeve Yor, um who's been She's been absolutely splendid to, to take this on because she does seem to be standing on her own. Bernie Conlon has is, is always been there to second second her motions. I want to, I want to thank her. Um, I really want to thank her like for, for standing up. She's 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 mm. an excellent counsellor for, mm. for, for, for supporting vi- these yeah. these victims. And there's victims in Louth. So one in four of, of people in Louth have been sexually abused at some time or manipulated mm. or whatever. It's one in four all over the country. It's the same allowed. It's no different allowed than anywhere else. But I want to thank I want to thank Maeve Yor. And I just look, whatever the councillors vote for on Monday, that's that's mm. it. What will, will be will be. Like the victims don't expect anything. We don't expect this this motion. We don't expect the, the rescindment to happen. Mm. We haven't seen the we haven't seen the support, I and mean, mm. you've invited councillors probably onto the show, public reps onto the show before. N- nobody, nobody yeah. has turned up. Well, we invited uh, the former Kerhirlik uh, Connor Keelan onto the program because mm-hmm. uh, the council pulled it. Yeah, it, the council, uh, the chief executive Joan mm. Martin pulled it. Yeah, she didn't have the right to pull it. No, it, she didn't. It no. was in breach of the local government act. Uh, uh, and at odds with Conor Keelan, uh, and there is a, a note saying uh, that he argued against it uh, and mm. was dismissed, basically, yeah. and he wasn't happy about it, he told yeah. us. It, it was pulled, I believe, it was against the local government, it's against the law, against the local government, the Reform Act 2014, that the, the, the CE has to advise mm. and assist. So you advise and assist the Coherlock, 
And then the councillors then make a decision. They vote on whether mm. they'll discuss it or whether they won't discuss it. But it should be on the agenda for them to discuss. Mm. There was nothing defamatory or anything like that. There, there was nothing There was nothing wrong with it. You've read it out several times on, on, on your show. Mm. I made a complaint then to the council and the ethics officer got back to me to write to me. To t he introduced himself. He said, I'll be looking after your complaint. I'm the ethics officer. And he's the same guy that is writing to your show telling you that uh, that they're happy with their procedures. So he's already made his decision when he writes to your show telling him that he's happy uh, with the decision. And he's writing to me telling me he's the ethics officer looking after my complaint. And despite uh, adequate notice uh, and requests for comment, uh, responded as we were going on air the day that we were covering the programme mm. and then ignored uh, letters for about three weeks, if I remember correctly, before finally returning to us. Yeah. Uh, there is, uh, Loud County Council has been uncooperative in the extreme with this programme in relation mm. to this story. Uh, it'll be over to the councillors on Monday and we'll be hearing more I think about this tomorrow and again on Monday. Uh, but thanks for coming into us today Damien. Thank you very much Michael. Thank you. Indeed. That's Damien O'Farrell. Uh, and as I say we'll hear more about uh, the Christian Brothers and Brother Edmund Garvey uh, over the coming days. That's our programme for today. Maggie McGuire Research. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.